Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles, the Managing Director of B Squared, and I am the host of the Sendcast, a podcast for special needs. Each week on the podcast, we'll be talking about a different topic within the world of special educational needs to improve our knowledge, to provide support to professionals in schools, and to empower parents. In this episode, we are talking about how to stop your limiting belief limiting you. I'll be discussing this with one of my regular guests, Ali Knowles. Ali is an emotional therapist and founder of the Ollie Model, and she supports emotional resilience in children and young people. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. We are here to show small steps of progress for pupils with SEND. And we do this for a wide range of abilities and ages. And we don't just do it for the English curriculum. We do it for the Welsh and the Scottish curriculums. But if you're a primary school struggling to show progress or struggling to identify where people isn't making progress, we can help. This is what we're about. Visit the B-Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me and I will take you through the B-Squared assessment system. Now, let's get on with the podcast. On this week's show, we're discussing how to stop your limiting belief limiting you. Joining me today is one of our more regular guests, Ali Knowles, and Ali is here with her cuddly beaver. Ali is the creator of the Ollie Model, the author of the series of Ollie and his superpower books, trainer of Ollie coaches, and an emotional therapist. Welcome to the show, Ali and your cuddly beaver. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. You were holding it up to the webcam and showing me to put me off. No, no, no. I was just introducing some of the things that we use when we're working with children, cuddly beavers and puppets and things. Moving on. <laughs> moving on, moving on. Um, I have learned so much from recording all of these podcasts with you. And probably the biggest thing I've learned in all, all the barriers, all the barriers and reasons I give for not doing something don't really exist. They're in my mind. That doesn't mean they don't exist. That's true. Because that Ar- is real to me. Arguably, nothing exists. But nothing exists if it's not in your mind. Everything, everything you think about the world, everything, the way you look at it, the way I look at it is different. That's all in your mind. So everything's in your mind. Yes, that's no, yes, no, yes, yes, yes. It's like the whole thing, if if, if no one's in the woods and a tree falls over, does it really make a noise? And the answer is technically no, because it doesn't make a noise till it actually reaches your eardrums. Or There's unless noise, it hits you. Unless it hits you. So, yeah, if no one's there to hear it, it hasn't made a noise because the noise only happens when it resonates in your eardrum. This is true. So nothing really exists till it is in your mind. So, yes, that makes perfect sense. It doesn't, it doesn't. It's, it's a bit of a mind bender, isn't it? But the reality is, I mean, there's a, there's a lovely one if you're a Potter fan. I think it's one of the, the last parts of the movie where Harry says, is this real or is it all in my mind? And there's no difference. Because your mind, your senses are making sense of the world. Your emotions, your your library in Ollie's world, subconscious, everything you've ever learned, is putting context into that. So arguably, nothing's real. And you are creating your own version. So it is all in your mind, but that doesn't mean it's not real. But it does mean that if you recognise that it's in your mind and you're putting it there and it's a story you're writing, guess what? You can write a different story if you don't like it. Well, that's interesting because, yeah, if you watch um, 
I remember when the Twilight films came out. Oh. And it was the final one. And this was a time when people used to record themselves watching the trailers. And I remember watching this woman and she was crying before it even started because she was upset that this was the last time she would ever watch a Twilight trailer for the first time. And she was really upset, crying, various things happening. She just crying, react. I'm literally going, what are you on? And I watched the same trailer. It had nothing on me. And that's the thing is what is in your mind shapes you all your reactions. So all those things that you felt, all the things you've experienced and everything goes forward. And when I receive that external input of that trailer and what it means to me, I will react. And for me, I had absolutely zero reaction, but for this person watching the exact same thing, it had a huge emotional reaction and I kind of, I laughed, but it was interesting. I just also thought, Wow that we have the same experience, but it meant so different to the two of us. It, it, it's, it's a fundamental thing behind our therapy model. You, when you're born, you know nothing. You're learning all the time. You're making sense of the world based on other people. Um, up to about 11 years old, you're not really questioning that much. You're just a sponge. You're taking it in. But it's the emotion you attach to any new learning that will colour that story in your mind and your reality. So, for example, when I was very little, somebody brought in some baby chicks one day into school. It was a safe environment. I was with my best friend. I was having a lovely day. The chicks were really cute. I was fine. Then you have people with bird phobias. Now, they could have been in the same room with me. Maybe they're not having such a good day. Maybe mummy and daddy had a row. Maybe they forgot. I, I don't know. But the emotion that they're experiencing at the point they learn something new will attach. It doesn't even need to be about the birds. So we're all, aren't they cute, lovely, and none of us have got a bird baby because it was a cute, happy day. There might have been another kid there that was um, mummy and daddy have just split up. And when they're looking at these little birds and someone says, where's mummy, it will bring out a whole new emotion. Now, the brain's not that smart. It's not really good with context, and it connects all sorts of stuff up. And the number of times I have someone come to me with a phobia and they're really, you know, it's a bird, it's a dog, it's this and it's other. But when you break it down, it's not. It's something that's spuriously attached to it and you've connected an emotion to it. My wife and another lady I work with both have a fear of flying. However, the fear didn't really arrive until they both had become mums. So the fear isn't really flying. The fear is leaving their children alone. Potentially. It'll be different for everybody, but it's back to what we did in the previous podcast about if you take some base value, you're probably going to get it wrong. You need to sort of drill down a bit to, you know, we were talking about is anger the key emotion? No, there's something driving the man anger out. There's another emotion in there. But, yeah, it can be all sorts. So all of a sudden you've attached this, I might not be around for my child, to anything that could harm you. So planes, cars, motorbikes, 101 things. Really does depend on the emotion you attach at any given point and what's going on in your mind, what really, really matters to you. So, yeah, that happens a lot where parents suddenly develop a fear or phobia for no reason. I mean, obviously, you've got some that have been on the plane and it wasn't great, yeah, and then that's logged. So, every plane's going to be like that, and your brain will do that. It's like, hang on a minute, that was dangerous last time. So, they make you anxious, 
which makes you know I've got a phobia of flying. I get anxious when I'm thinking about flying. The anxiety is to stop you doing it because last time it wasn't good. Fight or flight response. Doesn't mean it's going to happen again, but the brain will project that it's going to to try and protect you. And if you understand that, you can separate the two what happened before and this flight. Is it going to be the same? But a lot of times, somebody says, I haven't even been on a plane. I don't know why I'm terrified. But there'll be something about a plane. But you can't have a fear or phobia unless you have experienced something. That doesn't mean being on a plane that crashed yourself. You could have watched a film. You could have heard about a friend who doesn't matter. That's logged. And if it affects something internal and deep-rooted in you, like being there for your kids, it's suddenly going to become a phobia. And you're suddenly going to get very anxious about doing it because it's dangerous. It's fascinating. You talk to my wife and she's, oh, yeah, I, used to, uh, I got a job in New Zealand. I had to fly over there and I kept flying back and forth to New Zealand, which isn't one flight. It's a couple of flights each way. And the other person used to travel over to America because that's where her dad worked half the time. So it was like they both flew an awful amount. But then suddenly, nope, not fly, flying. No, just no. But also not the best. Pa- it is. It's just really interesting. It's not actually what they're scared of. It's something else. But that is where that fear is coming out. So they've associated it to flying. It can be. Yeah, I mean, it can be. And if you're lucky as a therapist and someone says, I've got a fear of birds, you can get to it quite quickly. <laughs> Little girl, grandma brought her terrified of birds. Like, And, and this fear has been getting bigger and bigger to the point where she won't even come into my therapy room, which is in my garden. So trees and birds wasn't a good thing. So, you know, you just drew around. I said, when did this start? Because I know no one's born with this. Although people will argue that you, you are with snakes and spiders. Mm-hmm. Um, and Grandma said, well, she's never been keen on them, but it got really worse about two months ago. So my next question is, what happened two months ago? Grandma took her to London for the first time, took her to Trafalgar Square and said, we're going to feed the pigeons. The kid's <laughs> not keen on birds anyway, but it was okay. They're all on the ground. Grandma gave her a load of pigeon food. Little girl threw it up in the air. And it was like a scene from Birds the movie. And in that instance, pretty much what's happening in your head or in Ollie's world, your library, your little librarian who stores everything that you're learning is probably, oh, I'm just going to put my feet up for the afternoon. Little ones with grandma, that's safe. Don't need to worry. And then all of a sudden, kids start screaming and panicking. And literally, the librarian is going, what's going on? What's going on? And your ears are going, birds screaming. Eyes are going, birds, claws. instant phobia so that's what caused that but when you break it down and and better still when you say okay little and that's now in your memory box and this happened three four months ago so the you three four months ago fortunately she just had a birthday so she just turned eight so you're only seven then even though it's only three four months yeah so when you're seven not as smart as you are now she just you know and i got to tell her all the things that she can do now as an eight-year-old even though it was only a couple of months so since her eighth, eighth birthday, she's been allowed to ride her own bike to school. She's been allowed, just giving her this point of separation. And I said, so were the birds, if we if we could look at that memory, because in Ollie's world, you can, you can go into your brain, your library and find the memory box and look in it. And when you look in it, you can see what happened. So I got her to find the memory box and she didn't want to look in it because it was scary birds. I said, yeah, but you're only seven and we can stand back from the box. So it's not real because it's in your head, right? So she was willing to look at this memory again. And I said, hmm, were the birds really trying to hurt you? And from that perspective, she went, 
No, they were trying to get the food before the other birds did because they were hungry. So they weren't trying to attack you. No. And it altered the level of anxiety she had. She still doesn't want hundreds of birds around her. We needed to do more work around that. But it altered the level of anxiety because she was able to relive that moment, but from a different perspective. So is it in your head? Is it real? Of course it is. I, I don't, that's interesting that we're a bit born with fears of snakes and spiders. There's a whole, I, I could just, I'd, I'd like to pick through that. I did see a really interesting thing, which was about fears. And it was, they had some, I'm going to guess there were swallows in a nest. And they had the silhouette of a sparrowhawk. And when they put it over and it went in the forward direction, and I've said this on the podcast before, they all reacted. When they did the same shape going the other direction, so going backwards, they did no reaction. So these were really young chicks, like a couple of days old, but they had this inbuilt fear of this silhouette. And I was like, that is fascinating. But I don't know if us humans have anything like that. Um, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm, I'm nowhere near intelligent enough to, to, is that genetic? Is it, you know, past? I have no idea. But one thing that I do know, and I can only talk about what I know, is when youngsters come to me with fears and phobias, there's either a, a recognised thing, like my little girl and the birds, or it's learnt. I don't know if they're born with it, but what I do see is a little one will get anxious about something mum and dad get anxious about, and they won't even know why, but they'll accept that it's dangerous. So if you think about, I don't know, a deer in the wild and it's got its little one next to it and they're both munching away, munchy, 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 and all of a sudden mum's ears go up. Little one knows and can sense that something in mum has changed. It can almost smell the fear. And I think when it smells the fear, even though it's not sure what it was, it will react. And then if it sees what mum has seen, it will connect the two. And that's it. That's now learnt. And I think children do do that. You know, we talk about five senses, but we've got a sixth sense. And, and a classic example was during COVID. And the number of parents that were doing the brilliant swan impersonation of everything's fine, darling. No, we don't need to worry. Honestly, it's fine. But their behaviour was slightly different or their tone or their, their pitch or their pace was different or their facial expression. Or you can smell fear. You really can. And I think children are born with, well, we're all born with a sixth sense. But I think when we're young, it's really powerful. And they just instinctively know when mum or dad aren't, completely calm and at peace now for them that's terrifying because if mum or dad are scared of something they're in real trouble because mum and dad are the protectors so i think they do react so if dad goes ah spider kids are gonna because but if dad says oh look it's a spider it's fine isn't it cute and again it comes back to what we're saying earlier it's the emotion you attach first time you come in contact with something new because kids will have spider phobias and they've never seen one, but dad reacts. And if you drill down, you'll get someone close has reacted or doesn't like them. Therefore, it must be bad. And I think that's just an inherent way of learning about our world quite quickly to keep us safe. Because if you imagine when, if you're a baby and snakes aren't bad, imagine back in the cave days and you didn't know, but dad's like, oh, snake and freaks. It's good you picked that up because you don't want to go and play with it really, do you? So. I think I think it's learned, and I think a lot of it might be sixth sense. I mean, there, there are studies which fascinate me. We do, we do a lot of work with um, some lovely, um, oh, Lord, 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 what do you call them? Help baby people give birth. Midwives? 
that's the word. Thank you. Lost it. And that, you know, we all know that there's, there's stuff about, you know, if you play calming music when the little one's in the womb, that will calm them down and it will still affect them when they come out. So they're very aware. But if mum's stressed or anxious while they're in the womb, they'll be aware of that too. They'll be aware of a difference in mum's body somehow. When they come out, they won't know what that was, but they'll be aware of it again next time and they'll pick up on it. Last time, that made it feel uncomfortable inside mummy. She's feeling it again. Even though I'm outside, I can sense it. What is it? And then your senses scan the room and you'll latch onto the first thing you see. So it might be a spider. It might be mum's dropped a mug of hot coffee. It could be anything. So I think there's a lot of that going on, but I think the sixth sense is incredibly powerful. I think as we get older, we ignore it, and we really shouldn't because it's very useful. It's there for a reason. I was just thinking about my my daughters were both scared of spiders. My wife is scared of spiders, and it's hard to not react. If you're scared of spiders, you say, shouldn't pass your fears onto your children. And it's fine saying that until there's a spider... Yeah, until there's a spider walking across the living room to my wife and it's quite big and you can hear the footsteps, then my wife will react. So my kids reacted. But definitely my eldest, because I, I would catch it with a glass in a real like, I'll get it, get the glass, get the paper. But I'd always show it to them. Go, look, it's just a spider. Look, look, it's quite cute. It's quite... And they'd look at it and go... And also they know that once it's in the glass of the paper, it's safe. You've removed the emotion. You've removed the threat. So my eldest will now just catch spiders and get rid of them. Have you ever noticed if you see a spider, the first thing you do is leap backwards? It's an instinctive reaction, yeah, if you're scared of them or anything. So I'm not keen on snakies. Oh, no. <laughs> you will leap backwards. It's an instinctive thing, fight or flight again. But the moment that you've leapt backwards, you've separated yourself from the danger a little bit. The moment you do that, you can drop out of fight or flight response, which makes you stupid purposely, so you don't think, you just react. And you can look at it from a different perspective. So the further you are away from the thing that scares you, the more perspective you've got about it. So putting the spider in the glass, holding it away from the child, letting them see that it is safe and it can't hurt them, allows the mind to settle, come out of anxiety, and look at it slightly differently. So, yeah. It's not real. Yeah, over the years, it's taken a... It's taken a while, but my elder, yeah, my elders from now, just go get a glass, pick up a spider, throw it out the window, and it just doesn't bother her, which is fascinating. My youngest isn't there quite yet, and she's 14. But if you'd have gone, I'll get it, I'll get it. Oh, my Lord, no, it's nearly out. It's going to get away. If you'd have done that, all hell would have broken loose. So they learnt from mum's reaction, but then they learnt from your reaction, and that helped stabilise it. Just don't ask me to get a moth. I don't like moths. I don't know why. I think I watched Silence of the Lambs too young. And again, that you know, was it a moth or was it a film? But it, but I can't, it, it makes no sense. I can li- I analyze it, and it makes no sense. My fear where it's come from. It just there is no. It makes no sense. But I still have it, and I feel it. But an awful and, lot of what we think and believe doesn't make any sense, and you have to ask where does that come from. I think I'm fairly rational most of the time, but there are things that make me. What's that about? Why Why does that make me nervy? But I now know that somewhere in my library or subconscious, there is a file connected with whatever it is that's just made me feel a bit anxious or nervy that before now upset me or harmed me physically or emotionally. And, you know, in in Ollie's world, we talk about the library and we talk about, you know, the little librarian who files stuff against the emotion you attach to it. You know, that made me happy. Great. That goes in a happy box. That scared me. That goes in scared box. And it will stay there. But in Ollie's world, we also have another little man. 
Um, some people call him anxiety. Some people call him panic attacks. We call him your bodyguard. He is your sixth sense. And he knows everything you've ever learned, everything you've ever experienced. He knows all the things you love and all the things that have frightened you. And if you're near anything that before now frightened you, his job is to protect you. And he makes you anxious. He's the one that makes you anxious because he's seen something you haven't yet. Or he's connected it to a time before now where it harmed you physically or emotionally. And he creates a fight or flight response so that you run away or fight your way out of it. But the problem with the bodyguard is he's a bit of a job's worth. And although he knows everything that's in your library, he doesn't know much about you, the person. He doesn't know that you're not four anymore. He doesn't know that you're not eight watching mummy scream at the spider. He doesn't realise that you're older, wiser, with more skills and capabilities. And sometimes all you need to do is just go, I call mine James Bond, <laughs> Sean Connery <laughs> version, the only Bond that matters. And I, I literally go, all right, James, no idea. I mean, I was, I was in a meeting a few weeks back, lovely meeting. I've mentioned this before, but it's a prime example. Meeting was going really well, boardroom. All the way through, I was anxious, and I didn't know why. There was no reason to be, and I'm racking my brain while trying to have a conversation. You can't do that. As we were leaving, I looked back because I always leave stuff behind. And in that moment, I knew why I was anxious. On the chair were purple cushions. What's that got to do with it? I hear you yell. Well, in my library, and I can do this now because I completely get how my brain works on this front, there is a memory of me being seven. And a really nasty teacher standing me up at the front of the class and making me feel really stupid because I can't spell. Now, my senses would have recorded that. My librarians recorded it. It's in a file. That was a bad experience. But it didn't just file the teacher making me try and spell a word in front of everyone. It filed everything about that room. Because it could feel my reaction and it could feel the emotion, but it wasn't sure what it was. Was it the teacher? Was it the room? Was there a smell in the room? So it took a picture that did smells, touch. It, it just picked up everything that was going on in that room, like a mini film. And one of the things was she had a purple cushion. That was enough to make my librarian go, oh, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. <laughs> that was what made me feel bloody anxious. It's ridiculous. And yet once you know that, you can go and you can let it go. But only if you can get your head round the fact it's all in there, but it was when you filed it. Is it still relevant? Do you still need to be scared of it? More importantly, if we're talking about limited beliefs, do you still need to believe it? So one of the things you've written in the notes before you sent me over, Brian, you've written, many people spend their life not taking the path they want because of their inner child. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. And I, I, I grew up in uh, Croydon, lovely, lovely Croydon. Um, and, but, my family, we travelled lots. My grandparents were from Manchester. So we did travel lots. And so travelling all over the country was normal. And we would go camping or we'd do anywhere, different parts of the country. So I saw lots of the UK and life was, that was just travel. It was normal. In Croydon, you're only 20-odd minutes by train from the centre of London. So it's a 20-minute train ride to London. But I said it was my friend's and mine 21st birthday. We were, we were all going to go out and we went out in Croydon. and said, right, let's all go up to London now. And most people just looked absolutely scared. We're going, look, it's 20 minutes train and then a tube, three stops, and then the club's there. They just looked at us completely confused of, we've got everything you need in Croydon. We don't need to go anywhere else. 
Croydon has everything we need. And the 20 of us became four. <laughs> it was the two birthday people and two others who went up to London and had a great night. And it's that realisation of how many people I knew in Croydon never left Croydon. They'd be in Croydon for like 40-odd weeks, here, 50 weeks a year, and then go on holiday for those two weeks. And what I said, there, well, that's really, but you then got to unpick the reasons and what opportunities we had previously and things like that. And I was lucky that my parents traveled, but if you, your parents don't have those opportunities then you won't travel, therefore you won't think it's the norm and that's going to shape your world. So you're less likely to take chances probably. And all of that just starts entering my mind. I mean, there's a myriad of reasons why they didn't. I mean, it could be their parents were like, well, no, London's big, it's dangerous, it's miles away, you could get lost, all this sort of stuff happens on the trains and you don't want to go to a nightclub, somebody will put something in your drink. It could be that. Yeah. Why, why put yourself at that risk? It could be, well, hang on a minute, what if I got lost? I got lost before, there's something in my mind, my James Bond is having a fit at the moment, I might get lost in London. So, again, you can't be scared of something unless you've been scared by it. The biggest fear is fear itself. Either you're scared because you don't know what's coming. Well, that's scary because if you don't know, that's dangerous. You're not not equipped. You're not ready. You're not safe. Or before now, it's frightened you. That's why we're all different because different things affect different people. But it's about the emotion you attach at the time. In my head, I assume that you either are somebody who takes chances or challenges or someone you don't. But in reality, what you're talking about is you won't take a chance if you or somebody has taken a chance. It's gone really wrong. So therefore, it's best to stay here. So it has maybe something has happened. That's... It's about your, your, your personal beliefs about your world, which, as we said, is it real or is it in your head? And back to what I said, when you're born, in theory, you have no fears. You haven't learned to be scared of anything yet. But the only reason we have fears is to protect us. You know, it's not like some evil thing. It is there to protect us. But you you have none. So somewhere along the line, you've learned to be afraid of it. Is it going to London and a train per se? You're scared of the train. Is it, um, well, actually, you know, Dale's saying we all go, but I know I'm not really one of the in crowd. You know, what if they think it's really funny just to leave me up there? Because it might be a limiting belief about how well they're accepted in the group. You can never know. But the thing no. is, everybody will have their own personal reason for reacting and behaving the way they are. And it, is, it is really fascinating. I, I simplified it to these two things, but there are so many myriads of why. Oh. And I remember another time we were going to go up shopping in Oxford Street. It was a nice day. They've got more shops in London, more um, more funky stuff, more different stuff. And my friend, it, uh, their mum was going, well, no, you can't. Why not? Well, this was in the late 90s or early, yeah, late 90s, was the IRA. And you were going, and I remember just going, well, what is the chance of that happening where I am on today, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I'm not going to let that live my life. I'm just going to continue with my life. What will happen will happen. I won't. But it was their mum was very much, no, I don't want you going to London because of this. Yeah. And it was, that was interesting because I think that would be going on for much longer. And I remember growing up and my dad pointing to me like in the stations, there are no bins. I said, Why are there no bins? 
oh, people might put things in bins which are naughty and they might destroy things. So, and it was interesting that, yeah, the whole generation would have grown up with these fears based around certain things that the next generation coming are going to be completely oblivious to. They would and they wouldn't. And again, it's it's about the individual's reality. So that mum's reality is, I, d- I don't know, there'll be a myriad of things, but it could be, for example, um, you know, this has happened. We weren't expecting it last time. It could happen again. If you're up there on your own, I'm not there to take care of you and protect you. So it could be that. Another mum will be, well, it has happened. The world's not a safe place. You know, we can wrap ourselves up in cotton wool and not live or we can get on with it. So, again, it's it's everybody's individual model of the world and how they view reality that affects how we all behave. But when we're talking about limiting beliefs, I mean, we all have those. And, again, we're not born with them. So when when you're born, you don't know anything about yourself. <laughs> and you learn it. But are you learning about yourself? I think that takes some of us forever, and some of us don't ever achieve it. But what we're learning is other people's opinion on ourselves and who we are, how we fit in, and how the world will work. So I don't know you're a disabled, son, so you know, you're brilliantly intelligent, but you're not going to be able to do this, this, and this, and no one's going to take you seriously. Or you're not white, son, therefore everybody that is is going to give you a hard time and there's, there's this going on all the time and it's from a place of love and protection but that then builds something into the reality you suddenly develop fears that why wouldn't you listen to because they're adults they know what they're doing my mind's a classic um my big sister was quite smart my little sister's very smart i can't read and write so it was drummed into me that i'm not smart and that i'm stupid so all the way through school i got you're stupid You'll never amount to anything. Um, and and you start to then notice that more than noticing when you're not stupid. So I noticed that, you know, I wasn't invited to be part of this team or that team. And I put it down to the fact I was stupid. It might actually be that actually they had a team and it wasn't my strength, which which happens. So you start to create and develop these beliefs about yourself. And they do all the way through your life they will make a decision for you. You might think, I want to go for that job. Oh, no, I can't. I can't read and write. They're not even going to look at me. So I don't even try. Um, I really would like to find a partner. I'm going to just go and ask that person. No, no, there's no point. You know, I know I'm, I'm not the right shape. I'm not. They're not even going to look. I'd like a new job. You name it, all these things. And just, just think about it now. And the guys listening, think about, all the way through your life where you might have wanted to do something, but something said, no, you better not, or classics, not for the likes of me, or no, it won't work for you, or you know it's just not going to work out. And we've all got these limiting beliefs, and we weren't born with them. They, We've learned them. And we do this thing where I do talks to like big rooms, 500 people, and we talk about limiting beliefs and how they affect you. And everybody's got one, so it's, I'm not smart enough. I'm not good looking enough. She's a better mum than me. She's a better teacher than me. He's a better dad than me. He's more of a man than I'll ever be. We've all got these things. It's like a little voice in your head that's just doing that all the time, just niggling away in your head in certain situations. And it will make you just back off out of a situation or not try because you've got this voice telling you you're not good enough in some way, which you weren't born with. And that's so, so important. And what we do 
is, you know, to get rid of a limiting belief in therapy could take months and months and months and a lot of money. But the truth is you weren't born with it. And although the limiting belief was strengthened over time because you'll purposely find things to make that true, because even if you don't like it, at least if it's true, you understand it and you know it, it was probably created in an instant. Prove it to you. Now, think about I don't want to know what it is. Think about a limiting belief you have. Yep. And anyone listening, do the same thing. Just think about a limiting belief. I'm not this. I'm not that. She's better. He's better. I'll never get that job. He'll never go out with me. I'm a rubbish mum. Whatever it is, right? That all the way through your life has stopped you probably following the path you wanted to. So we've talked in a lot of these podcasts about how we learn, how we work out our world. And pretty much up until, and it's, it's you know, I hate this up until because it's very individual as well, but around about 11, 12, you're just taking whatever anyone suggests to you about the world as verbatim. You're not questioning it. It is fact. And you're just taking that on board. And then when you hit your teens, you start to question it a little bit. But up until that age, you'll just accept it as fact. So here's the thing. Hang on to that limiting belief just for a second and just give yourself a second to think about the number of times seriously made you go left instead of right or right instead of left it's blocked you it's limited who you could be or more importantly who you wish or want to be without overthinking imagine because in ollie's world every emotion and thought is a part of you not who you are imagine i could reach through the screen and i could take your limiting belief just for a second and just hold it in my hand probably the first time in a long time you haven't had it you can have it back i've got enough of my own but just for a second I've got that limiting belief in my hand. Without overthinking it, how young is this thing I'm holding in my hand? Go. Very young. As I said, we do this with rooms of five, 600 people, and very rarely does anyone come up with a number over about 10 or 11. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is that this limiting belief was created in you as a small child. So all those times that that thought or feeling or voice is saying, no, no, we can't, we can't, that limiting belief, all the times it takes over, you have, in effect, been hijacked by a very small child, a very young version of you. Question, Dale, would you think about this? You are the MD of your company and you run Sencar, so careful of your answers. Would you let, how old, how old was your limiting belief, just out of interest, if you don't mind sharing? Uh, mine was, let's say, seven. Okay. Would you let a seven-year-old drive your car on a motorway? No. That's good. Would you let a seven-year-old loose with your bank account? No. Would you let a seven-year-old choose your life partner? No. Would you let a seven-year-old run your company? No. Why not? Because they're seven. (laughs) So why on earth do you let that voice, that feeling, that seven-year-old you have an opinion on anything you do that the interest listening to that is i love to think about it going that that thought entered my mind and then and that would have come from somewhere could have been, would have been an external factor wouldn't have been internal would have been an external factor and then various things through teenage years probably reinforced that and that has then stuck and it's like that but it's like the film the butterfly effect if i went back and almost just, just as someone's about to say it, covered their mouth, they couldn't say it, my life would be very different. 
Not saying yeah. better, not saying yeah, worse. Going to stop it's, you there. You're still looking externally. You're right. Yeah, you can yeah, time travel. Would, but here's the thing: we can't go back, and no. it wouldn't be different because, as a seven-year-old, you could only make the decisions you made based on your capabilities as a seven-year-old. What you can do now is recognise that, and recognise that that limiting belief or beliefs is that of a seven-year-old, not the man you are now not the person you are now. And when you hear that voice making decisions for you, you can absolutely choose because you create your own world and your reality. You can choose to listen to it because you have every right to because something bad happened and you're still not over it and you want to kick off. You're right, okay? I'm not going to tell you not to. Or you can go, whatever happened back there that created this limiting belief, there was nothing I could do about it then, but now I can. So that limiting belief that was probably imposed on me by someone else or other people, so you feel angry and you feel pain and you want to have a go because you don't feel it's been sorted, the bottom line is you're allowing it now. They're not hurting you. You are because you're allowing a seven-year-old to make decisions for you. It's about taking responsibility for ourselves. We can't change other people, but we can change how we think and feel. I'm not saying... You don't have a right to be mad as hell and want to hang on to that seven-year-old voice. Yeah. But that is your choice. So if you are going left instead of right, it's because you're choosing to now. Because that seven-year-old you should not be in charge and you're the only one letting them, not what caused it. Hard one to swallow, but seriously, if you want to set yourselves free. You say things like this and expect me to continue having a podcast with you. Well, I just want to sit here and think about it and, and turn it over in my hand. Talk about fevers or something but it, you know it's, it's a really really hard one and i know i make it sound simplistic I have, I have people come to my therapy room and they'll say well you know i've always believed this to be true about me and i don't know how to change it and i talk them through our model which is just metaphors to make therapy more accessible so that you can take charge of it yourself and not need me as a therapist so i say about the library and the bodyguard and how we store stuff and you know you store it at a point in time with certain capabilities and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I've had this for, you know, 50 years, Ali. So how many sessions? And I say, I don't know. It depends how quickly you're willing to let this go. And they're like, well, I can't let it go. I've had it for 50 years. So is it going to take months and months and months? I'm like, why would it take months and months and months? Because it was created quite early on. It might have grown stronger over the years. You've cemented it up. Because there's also another factor playing here. You know, there's a part of me that has this limiting belief I'm not smart enough I'm not intelligent enough I'm not this that and the other that limiting belief in my voice in my head but some people hang on to it even when you explain it because it's useful secondary gain if I let this go if I let this belief go that um I don't know that I can cope on my own and that you know despite my really bad anxiety and I'm not putting you know I, I absolutely respect what people go through please don't get me wrong I want to let go of this anxiety, but if I let it go, who am I? Because at the moment it's kind of working, even though it's horrible, because everybody knows I'm anxious, so they don't ask me out or they ask me out, but on my terms. And we create a reality that works for us. We create a world that works for us. And we create it, and to change it means letting go of something because you created it because it worked. So to change it, you've got to let go of something. And that can be quite hard. And one of the questions I ask is, 
Who would you be if you let could let go of this limiting belief? Oh, well, I'd be this, 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 and this. It'd be brilliant. Okay. What would you lose? Oh, I wouldn't lose anything. Well, you would. It's a behavior. It's something you're hanging on to, so there must be a reason. What would you have to give up? And then there's this quiet moment, and you could see them. I might have to get back out there and get on with my life, which is scary. But then at least as a therapist, I'm working on the right thing. I can spend a lot of time dealing with the anxiety. That's a behavior. The anxiety is helping them in some way, either protecting them from something scary like a snake or stopping them having to get back in the saddle and get back out there because it was so scary last time. So is it real or is it all in our head? My head was listening, I'm going, right, so I can deal with that and I can take it out and I say that's that. But then I know it's that and I know I'm doing that because of that. So then it becomes like a bit of a mask. Well, then it becomes secondary gain. There's a reason you're hanging on to it. What's that about? And it's like, well, if I take this off, will people like what's underneath? Well, what's going to happen if I take this off? And that's a whole other thing that, okay, I can, yeah, I can do this. Can I? Oh, actually, now I know I'm here and now I know my life has turned out because of this. Oh, well, yeah, I'm quite, yeah, that's a whole kind I know of I should stop smoking, but if I stop smoking, will I still be able to just have a conversation with somebody just by saying, have you got a light? Yeah, of course I will. But there's that fear, isn't there, that you're going to have to give something up. But the other thing is, and you see it a lot in therapy as well, and the reason people hang on to something, even though they, they want to let it go, and it's not always a conscious decision, is people are attracted to you because of the you that you present. If you change that in any way, they might not be as attractive. It's like throwing. So if when you work with somebody in a therapy situation, you're throwing a pebble in the pond, their pond. Now, some people are going to love that and want to get closer, and other people are going to go, whoa, and swim for the shore because you're no longer what they need you to be. And subconsciously, I have people that hang on to a behavior or a belief because they know that if they suddenly are more independent and they suddenly do say no occasionally, their whole world could fall down. And that's scary. So you have to be, you have to really, really honour what someone's going through and why they're, they're feeling what they're feeling and why they're dealing with what they're dealing with because it's never that simple. Their whole world is built around what they believe to be true about themselves. You change any of that, it starts to crumble. And from the outside, it might be really clear that actually they need to take this step. They need to do this. They need to make that change. Although they have friends, and I'm air quoting friends, is they're not really friends. It's just, but by being there and by them taking this mask off, they are going to lose those friends in air quotes and go somewhere different or not. They might be accepted. Their friends might change to, oh, we don't have this side. We like this side of you. But it is, you, you are literally gambling and your life is changing. But what we know is comfortable yeah and you're going to just take everyone out of their comfort zone well you are and you aren't the fact they've actually come to you as a therapist in the first place is because it's now got to the point where it's uncomfortable even if they didn't realize exactly what it was and they come with anxiety but actually it's but you know you said something quite important now you can see that it would be better for them no i have no idea it'd be better for them that would be my perspective from my model of the world the way my reality works why on earth are they put in? Why, why is she staying with him? He's an absolute toad. That's my model of the world. But I don't live in her reality or his reality. So I can never do that. And I can, yeah, obviously, I'm human. I'm like, oh, for God's sake, she's so bad for you. She's so bad for you. Get out of there. But it's 
it's not for me to give advice, and I never do, because I have to honour that any decision that an individual has made that's got them to the place where they're at, they made with the best intention. So for me to say, what on earth are you doing? That's so wrong. Get out of there. I'm just saying you're stupid. How can I say that when I have not lived through what they've been through and I cannot possibly experience it? So I'd never say that. I might think it because obviously I'm human, but I'd never say it because I don't know that it would be better for them to not be in that situation. And sometimes, you know, hanging on to a little bit of anxiety so you're still quite needy and you can't say no too often isn't a bad thing. Best of both worlds. I I never know what's right for a client. They have to work that out themselves. But in order to work it out, they need to be able to see it. My job's just to shine a torch and go, okay, what do you want to do with this? It's yours. I don't have an opinion. I find it interesting. Overall, our podcast, you keep pulling me up for saying the wrong thing, not in a horrible way, just to be very clear. And it is, and you're very much correct. We always impose our views of the world into every situation. So I would say, but just by the things I say, it's like, well, that's what I believe from my experiences. So oh, this yeah, is what you, should happen. If you didn't do that and you didn't impose your model of the world, then that would mean that you're questioning your model of the world. And if you do that, it might fall down. That's dangerous. And it is as, as, as open as I think I am. You keep showing me that, no, I've still got a long way to go, which, and I'm quite perfectly happy with that, that I've still got these rules in my head that I don't realise I have, but the way I speak and the way I do, I obviously have these rules that this is how the world should be. This is what is right for everyone. But it's not right. It's right. It might not even be right for me, but it's what I've been taught is right. But I kind of come back at you on that one and say, no. Um, Don't do that. Any rules rules you have in your head, any thoughts you have in your head about any conversations we have, they're yours. And if you're questioning any of it, that's yours because it's not for me to give you advice. It's not for me to say, no, you're looking at this wrong. It's for me to say, okay. That's how you're looking at it if you stand here. What if you stand back there? What if you stand over there? What if you stand over there? Because I, my job is to put you in a position where you have as much information as possible. Imagine, imagine going down a dark tunnel and I give you a very small torch and you're walking down this tunnel and you have no idea what's in there. All I do is give you a bigger torch. What you do with that information is up to you. I have no opinion on it. How can I? I'm not you. I don't know what you need or how your world is. Um, I'm just going to end this on um, the film The Dead Poet Society. Have you seen that? <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Captain, my captain. Captain, my captain. It's. I loved watching that film, and that was a film I think I watched early on in my life. And it really, I can't tell you how it impacted me. I just, I, I don't. I, be on the national curriculum, it's awesome. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't tell you at the time how it impacted. I still can't really tell you, but it just, it impacted me. And that's all I know. I walked away going, oh. And I don't have the, the emotional intelligence at the time or whatever intelligence or anything I had to explain how. It just, I went, oh. And it was a very, there's different ways to live your life. There is different things and all these things impact everyone differently because he was, he was saying, don't do the same thing as everyone else. Live it your way. 
and you just watch. And it was beautiful. If you look at every different student, you had every different reaction to what he was saying going on in that classroom. Yep. That some just really didn't believe him. Some thought, that just can we just get back to what we're supposed to be doing, please? Others were fully buying in and really going for it. It was really amazing. And it is a whole standing on top of the table. If you haven't stood on top of a table in a room and looked around that room. Yeah. When you do painting and you get, you're painting the ceiling and you're up there, you look around and you go, it just looks different. But it's dangerous, isn't it? It's interesting. We all take something different from that film. And I think I probably took a, a lot of the same things you are, but I'll never know. We have different realities. But the one thing I took away from it was fear. And the fear was that I would love to be that person that let them see they could be what they want to be. But I also know that I would hate the stones thrown at me for setting people up to fail because that would be the first thing. Parents would say, no, 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 they can't, they can't. Why are you setting them up to fail? That's their beliefs, not mine. I'm not setting anyone up to fail. You've decided they're going to, and that's your fear. But if you allow people to be individual and be who they are, that scares people because then they don't fit in a tribe. And they might question yours and they might question your reality and that puts cracks in it and that's scary. That's why we're still, even in this day and age, encouraged to belong to tribes, groups, gangs, political parties, so we all think the same way so that we don't crash realities. We don't think freely. You see it in schools now. Sorry, get political. Ofsted, what are you doing? Leave the teachers alone. Let the kids use their imagination. Don't just let them listen to what's being preached at them. Let them ask questions because otherwise we're robots. I know Ofsted's not got a good press recently. I think there's worse things going on with schools than Ofsted. Ofsted get the bad thing. I think league tables and so many other things are really the worst part. Ofsted, Ofsted yeah, but I'm not going to go there. Um, so, yeah, um, Dead Poet Society, if you haven't watched it, go and watch it. And um, even that whole thing of that fear of making a change, that is illustrated in the film as well with pe- some of the parents and how they respond. And the other one is um, Goodwill Hunting is another one yeah. which really resonated with me um it really did um i am somebody who a bit like goodwill hunting i just it just clicks when he talks about you know when beethoven saw a piano he just saw the 1812 overture or whatever whoever wrote that one he just saw it and it's things like that certain things i just get and i could just play as he put it and it really really resonated with me i'm not that level just be very clear i'm not goodwill hunting level and it, it helped me see and how I was and who I was and being scared to cash that card in and things like that. And just the whole thing about loyalty and where people come from and how he just decided what other people were thinking based on his experience without actually having any experience. It was a a really fascinating film that you can take a lot from. And even the two professors competing and, what they think is important, what other one thinks is important, there's a lot goes on in that film, and I find that also very fascinating. Have you seen that one? And again, yeah, and, 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 you know, any subject that we could come up with is going to come down to the same thing. The only reason you have a view on it is because at some point in your life it was instilled in you in some way. So if your family instilled in you go, be all you can be, brilliant. If they instilled in you don't, wasn't because they're bad people and they want to hold you back it would have been from protection but we are what we've experienced we write our story based on our experience 
But, you know, we don't know what tomorrow is. We don't know what our future is, but we don't like that. We need to know. So we write our future based on what we do know, our past. Don't. Don't. Dare. Just dare. Uh, I like the thing on the previous. Screw the script up. Write something outrageous. Just dare. Do it. Because you can. Because is it real or is it in your head? I like the fact on the previous podcast, you talked about the people are put in your lives just to help you make certain decisions. They come in at that point and you need them. <laughs> my, my, and my, going my to good philosophy. <laughs> yes. And if you go to Goodwill Hunting, it's Robin Williams' character. Completely. It, and that's the same sort of thing. He needed that person at that time. He needed someone to challenge him. And you talk about the way he talks. He's not had that ever in his life. He's never had that real father figure apart from the one who beat him, but actually an intellectual person to challenge his points of view and question him. But yeah, it's, it's really interesting. As I, have I, as I learned so many lessons, either through lots of mistakes and getting through them, or just hearing, like you, Ali, talk and explain things, and I'm going, that makes so much more sense now. Oh, yeah, but you see, the thing is, and it probably is a good place to close, because we started with, is it real or is it in your head? Everything that I'm talking about is the world according to Ali, my reality, and what works and makes sense for me. Is it real? It's real if you want it to be and if it works for you and if you allow it into yours. But if what I'm saying doesn't work for you, then it's not real and you'll dismiss it, and that's okay. But you might come back and it might be real then. You never know. It's just not real right now. <laughs> but that's the thing it's not the right time yeah sometimes when you hear something it's not the right time and then you hear it later on and suddenly it's like a chain reaction goes back off and you go oh i get that and it's amazing how many times one little moment really insignificant has a big impact on your life yes you have let it probably but it has had an impact on your life for whatever reason and it's changed it and it's just amazing how those little bits are and how it might be one decision you made at some point in your life but that has properly set you off of the course for the rest of your life another final film i'm going to touch on everything everywhere all at once <laughs> have you seen that one yeah. That is an amazing film. Um, don't watch with your kids. Um, there's lots of strange stuff in that film. But that is a whole multiverse thing, which is a whole every decision you make in your life. There's a positive outcome. There's a negative outcome. And, and that's, that was quite interesting. They did it very much binary, positive or negative, every decision. And you see these characters, the character we're looking at, if she had made different decisions, you saw her different lives. And it was re it's a really fascinating thing that there are all these different versions of me somewhere. Not saying, and I get it, it didn't say which one's right, and we focused on this one, and it was a fascinating story. But again, what I liked about it, which is again what we're touching on here, is we talk about our world is populated by the time we're age 11 by our parents, and then we hold on to that and they get reinforced or we drop them. But they're probably the most strongest parts of our lives, our views, come from that era. And we can change, but they're there. And it was interesting in this film how it covered three generations. The expectations from the father, 
to them, to their daughter, and how they really actually were letting each other down. But it's just, it's what is expected. It's the way the world is. It's these rules. Apples falling from trees is probably one everybody's heard about. And, you know, if you fall not far from the tree, then you're going to grow up in the shade, for one, so probably not quite as strong, probably not as tall because the other shade, the other tree is already there, is blocking that. But also you're not going to be very different, are you? So the best thing that could happen is you roll down the hill a little bit. Yeah. Get a bit that little bit further away. And you see, it's chain reaction. We all say we don't want to be our parents, but we can't help because for years they established our reality and how we react and what we believe to be true about things. And as we get older, we might start kicking against that. But it's quite deep-rooted. But It is. Whichever way you look at it, as tough as it is, no one can make you think and feel anything you don't allow yourself to. So no one's upsetting you. No one's being horrible to you. Well, they might be, but you're letting how you feel about that react. Does it make it okay for them to be horrible? No. Are you going to be able to change them? No. But we do write our own stories. And you can blame external things for the story. And, yeah, they do have an impact, you know. I took my mother on holiday for our annual let's take mother away, it's a good thing to do thing, and pushing her wheelchair put my back out. I'm angry as hell because now I'm in a back brace and painkillers and I've got meetings and I can't stand up. I'm angry at her. I'm angry at myself. The truth is my back went. It's happened. Staying angry at her, is that going to make it better? No, I need to dig a bit deeper. Whose fault is it? <laughs> it's mine, isn't it? I'm not a string chicken anymore. But it's easier to blame externally, isn't it? So only when we start looking inside. Physical things happen, they do. How you react to them is your choice. We can't stop what other people do to us. But how we react to it, we can. And how much pain you want to put yourself through over and above the physical, because that repairs some mental pain that goes on. And once you realise that actually it can only go on if you allow it within your story, within the reality of the world you've created about you, then if you wish to feel the pain from other people's actions, emotional pains, knock yourself out. It's not for me to say don't. You've every right to stay angry. You've every right to stay stuck. Or you can go, do you know what? I'm not going to change this. I wish I could. I am angry and I'm going to stay angry for a while. I've given myself another four hours on my PlayStation to be angry. That's what I'm going to do. And then when I've got that out of my system, I'm going to go and be me. Because this was just chapter one. I'm the author, no one else. I'm still in class two, going back to your other dads. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're at least class four or five, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for coming on the show today. And after this, I'm going to go just lie down for a while and think. That's the thing, is you're saying all this stuff, and I'm lining it all up and thinking about these films going, it, it, it's all there. It's like, um, I'm going to go chat GPT. If you ask chat GPT a question, it gives you very good answers based on all this research. And what I love about it is you ask the questions and it gives you an answer which you already know, but yet you know we aren't doing as a society. We know what we should be doing. We just don't always like doing it. And that would be a emotional reason, which is then become a self-reason and so on. But I'm going to stop now because we could go around in circles and keep going. Um, thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely loved it. It's not always we give film recommendations. I think it's the first time ever. Um, so Good War Hunting, um, Dead Pirate Society, and everything, everywhere, all at once. That one is 
uh, has got an 18 rating for a reason. So just don't watch it with the children. Um, and we'll be putting links to stuff from Ali and the contact details and Ollie and his superpowers, all that lot in the show notes. And you also get my contact details as well. So you find them wherever you listen to the web, listen to the podcast or on our website. If you want to get in touch, let us know your thoughts, suggest topics, anything else, give film reviews, uh, or ask uh, where uh, Ali got her beaver from. Uh, please an email to hello at the com. Just be clear, she has a real beaver sitting on her. Is it on your monitor? Is it on a bookcase next to you? I have a pet beaver because when we work with children, we have recognised that to get them to remember something, they probably can't remember the times tables, but they remember songs and rhymes. And one of the ones we did was the beaver dance. So just to clear that up, that's why we have a pet beaver. He's very useful in emotional therapy with children. There we go. So you can send an email to hello at thesendcast.com. And as always, we'll talk about B Square because if you are struggling to show progress, if your assessment process is overcomplicated too long, or you just need to see what's available from us, have a look at the B Square website or book a free online meeting so we can take you through our products. We have a range of products to help all schools show small steps of progress for people with CND and I'd also identify next steps and help give you more useful communication to parents, not just saying they're behind. You can actually say they've achieved this and next steps are this. Um, have a look on our website. On our website, you're going to find our online training, our webinars, our blog, lots and lots of information. And you'll find a link to the website and to book a meeting in the show notes. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from the Beaver. <laughs>